from MZ Studios in Dallas, Texas, you're listening to the Tennis Revolution Podcast. So who is ready to stop talking about pro tennis? Not us. Uh, Definitely me. (laughs) Definitely me. So we're taking a break from talking about real live tennis to, well. I was about to say, it's still pro tennis. Indirectly, but it's all tennis. Right. As you'll soon hear. So I drove down to Austin and uh, you you decided not to go. Uh, I told you I'd pay for your Greyhound ticket. For me. Well, I was going to pay for your bus ticket because I certainly didn't want you in the car with me for three hours. It was 1957. Yes. And so, um, and so, yeah. So we I went down to interview a fella, uh, an Australian fella. I don't know if they call him fellas in Australia. And uh, his name is Craig O'Shaughnessy. And he has, uh, has a product called TheBrainGameTennis.com. You ever heard of it? I have. Are you just saying that? <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> I've actually been hearing about him for years. Well, he has been all over uh, TV. Uh, they actually interviewed him at the U.S. Open, and uh, and he works with jo- Djokovic. He's in his camp. Who? Yeah, I know. The greatest player ever. <laughs> and uh, also with Berrettini, who made some noise uh, this fine U.S. Open this year. Yeah, and isn't it funny how those guys always get a little more credit just based on what their guys are doing right that moment, even though he's, like you said, he's been with Djokovic for however long. But it's always, what can you do for me lately? True, true. So anyway, so yeah, so we'll uh, we'll listen to his interview. That will be the episode. And uh, and I guess maybe should we sign off now? No, that might confuse people. <laughs> right. But at the end, at the end of the interview, thanks for joining the revolution. Take a listen. So is it... O'Shaughnessy? O'Shaughnessy. O'Shaughnessy, because there's no U in it. No U, which, no G. By the way, Google doesn't care. Okay. They, they, they find you no matter how I spelled it, because it was a disaster. <laughs> I got Craig right, though. So uh, welcome to the Tennis Revolution podcast. Thank you very much. I'm sure you've heard of it. Yeah, absolutely. Big fan. I've got a free t-shirt in the car for you if you I want like it later. That. So Looks good. Great t-shirts, by the way. Wash them inside out. They don't fade. So come down to beautiful hill country, right on the edge of the hill country in Austin. Uh, with that accent, there's no chance you're from here. So you're Australian, is that right? Absolutely. And how did you get here? How did you get to beautiful Texas? Uh, college scholarship. So There we go. Originally a year in Oklahoma, then a year in California. And uh, my junior year, I transferred into Baylor and played number one my junior and senior year. And... I had a fifth year, so one more year to graduate with a uh, journalism degree and really enjoyed it. You know, I come from a small town called Albury in Australia. At the time, it was about 30,000 people. So Waco, not that different. Yeah. Um, So I felt really at home in Waco, really enjoyed it. Baylor was fantastic. And the weather. Come on, it's miserable here, just like back home, right? (laughs) Well, there's hardly any humidity where I'm from in Australia, and, and certainly Waco had a lot of it. Sure. But, um, yeah, I was here for a while. Then I moved back to Australia uh, and and then came back to Texas and coached uh, at the T-Barium Racket Club, Club in Dallas, yep. ran the junior program, and then moved out of there and, and spent more time on the pro tour but still lived in Dallas. And then in 2013, moved to Austin, uh, ran, a, ran an academy. And after a year, I got out of that and started my – specific brain game tennis brand and the, and the business focusing on match strategy. And, never, um, never heard of that. I just came down here because your history with Baylor, really, <laughs> I think. No, obviously that's what you hear your name on TV and everything. How fancy is that? that does that kind of take you aback sometimes when you're watching tennis and you hear your name? Uh, it's fun. You know, the Wimbledon channel is where I do most of the TV work and uh, I've been cutting up a lot of the – um, interviews and and strategy analysis pieces I did from the last two years and putting them out this week kind of a primer um, for everybody that's getting ready for Wimbledon. So I've been going through watching some of the good things I think I did from last year, but I'm, I'm I look at some of the things I'm like ah that didn't quite work. So <laughs> I think it'll help me actually to review the last two years to get ready for this year. 
Yeah. Uh, so yeah, obviously the brain game is, is, uh, name of your website. Is it the brain game? Braingametennis.com. Braingametennis.com because they do have a brain game, which is like for old people to help their mental acuity. Is that right? That's absolutely true. Is that you also? No. Because I need some help in that area for sure. My memory. Um, so braingametennis.com. And when did you really, when did that, that start? Probably officially the beginning of 2014. Now, a lot of the strategy work and videos and and the learning, you know, goes back probably to I don't know maybe two thousand. Um, even the at an early Andre Agassi DVD analysis piece where I had parts of three matches that he played, um, and one of those was from nineteen ninety eight. Uh, I ran my own academy in back in Wodonga in Australia in ninety five. And then graduated from college in 91. So all of that, probably from 91, that next decade was putting things together. But at the start of 2014, I wanted to move off the court. I coached a million hours. um, And I enjoyed the Pro Tour, but I didn't want to be coaching on the Pro Tour all the time. So I took the two passions that I have the most, which is tennis strategy and, and the journalism side and writing, and created a website at the beginning of 2014 and put my first course there, 25 Golden Rules of Single Strategy, and um, and it's built. There's now nine courses, and there's it's kind of three arms of, of what I do. One is my website. One is uh, a lot of the writing and consulting work that I do. So I write a 100 stories a year for the ATP Tour. I consult with the Italian Federation. I'm the analyst for, the, uh, for Wimbledon, uh, Australian Open, so that's kind of one arm. The second is is the website, and the third is a lot of time and 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 work goes into um, the relationship I have with Novak Djokovic in helping him and being part of his team with Murray and Vida and helping him with all of his matches. Well, I don't know if this matters or not, but uh, every time somebody makes an argument for Federer being the greatest of all time, it strengthens my argument that Novak is. So well, that's a whole other podcast. Yes, please. it is. <laughs> but. Just throwing it out there, yeah. not kissing up to you, but I, that's what we believe. Well, that's what I believe. My co-host, I don't know, on the podcast, uh, who didn't make the trip. So, so the brain game ultimately, what it sounds like, is a culmination of just all your experience playing, learning, being coached, coaching, and now you've put this together in a package or packages. Now, is it designed? Is it, is, is the braingame.com dot com primarily since you're a coach coming from the coach side of things, or can the average everyday player uh, get some benefit out of these things? Yeah, it's actually both. I thought a lot about dividing the website into coach only information and players only, but the more that I looked at it um, and analyzed patterns of play and data and, and even drills. I mean, it's it's elements that the coaches need to know and elements that players need to know. So um, I I think it goes very well for both. There's, you know, the, the courses that I had, you know, a recent one is called The First Four Shots. Lots of players and lots of coaches purchase that. So um, I don't think there's any clear line between data only for coaches or players. Sure. And in level, what are we talking about? Just Djokovic, just the greatest ever, or you know, it's interesting. Is that when you look at the best players in the world running the best patterns in the world, a lot of that can be copied, and it's a copy and paste method for players down to a three five four zero level. So, just imagine Roger and Rafa playing versus two four zero players. Um, the two main differences with Roger and Rafa is the speed that they're hitting the ball sure. and the speed of their feet moving around the court. So let's say the difference between those two guys and a 4-0 match, say they're moving at around 80, they're hitting at 80% of the speed and moving at 80% of the speed. So what if we did the reverse and instead of, and looked at it like this, where we put Roger and Rafa, we watched their match in Dartfish software where you can control the speed that we're watching it. And oh, we wow. re- and we reduced Roger and Rafa down by 20 percentage points down so that they're now at 80%. So they're essentially it's Roger and Rafa at the speed of a 4-0 game. And what you're looking at there is two 4-0 players 
hitting the ball exactly where it needs to go, playing the highest percentage patterns. Right. They're still doing the same thing, but they're doing it at the speed of a four. In the context of their skills. Exactly. So a lot of the things that I learn from the pro tour, I take directly to teaching juniors or to teaching adult recreational players. It's They're doing it at a different speed, um, but they're also not looking over the other side of the net and seeing Roger over there. Right. So um, – you know, it doesn't matter whether it's juniors or boys or girls. A lot of the times the numbers and the analytics and the metrics that are involved in our sport wash very clearly through all levels. Yeah. How intimidating is your website? You got it. I mean, you're a journalist. So you know how to write. So did you sort of put it – because a 4-0 player maybe hasn't even been playing that long, doesn't have that much experience getting coached. And so is it pretty – you know, accessible in that regard? Yeah, very much so. I like to keep things simple. Um, that's, that's, uh, we're live, folks. Uh, that's not, uh, that's not sound effects I'm adding in. Two, by the way, two of the cutest puppies ever. Pompey and Ash. I didn't want to listen. I didn't want to put their personal information out. <laughs> in, you know, they're very private dogs. Yeah, they're good. They're good. <laughs> um, so in, in the web pages of these courses, there's, video of me talking about whatever specific element that page is all about. There's tables that clearly show you the analytics. Um, and then I write, I write about it to keep things very, very simple. So I think one of the things that um, I like to hear and I, and I often hear is that, Craig, you take a mountain of data, a mountain of different things that are happening in a tennis match and you make it simple. Right. So for – a 4 player, they can go to the website and easily see patterns of play that, um, that, that will help them. So you do exactly what any good coach does and makes a bunch of information that might not connect to other people, kind of drill down, get to the core of it, make it simple, and there you, you just do it on a website. Exactly, exactly. You, you know, it, it's all about making things simple. For me – it's about assembling a mountain of data and looking at it over tournaments and looking at it over comparing different years. Um, some of the database I've got are, are massive, but at the end of the day, you're helping players make a decision. Do, is it better to serve wide or down the tee? Is it better to hit a forehand or a backhand? In this situation, is it better to go to the net or, or, or stay back? Is it better to approach to a backhand or a forehand? So a lot of times when you're looking at the data and looking at the patterns, you're really trying to break things down to two up to two options and figure out which one's the best. Yeah. yeah. I know I know what's happening. They're, they're, she's barking over a bunch. It's not with So one of them leaves it outside, so they both want the bone that's inside. So they, they, they're, they've been barking at each other, and now they're, they're barking over the bone. They never bark inside. Right. Unless there's a UPS guy coming over. Right. So I know what that's about. If, it, it, if the bones get there, separated, yeah. There's, there's one bone and two dogs. Let me just make sure there's no more barks coming. Because normally they don't say a word. Okay. Yes. And like I said, I'll listen to this yeah. and I'll give him the, he'll chop everything out. Sure. So no sweat. So we'll yep. kind of maybe go over some of the same stuff, but okay. I'll piece it together. Um, so. <laughs> Ash. Ash. Come here. Come and say hi. Come say hi. Good girl. Okay. Hey, puppy. So. So this is so one thing that that uh, sort of struck me generally, and, and you've probably you might be a little bit older than me, uh, but you know I think we both kind of can look back at the history of tennis. And one thing that is certainly true is that we sure don't know how to innovate. Uh, you know, we are so I can't re- you know for a game that's been around since some say the twelve hundreds. Uh, we sure are late to the party a lot. And starting with, you know, weightlifting, you know, who was doing that? Football players, you know, rugby players or, or whatever you guys do in Australia. Uh, it came late to tennis. So things like this, saw on your website, you referenced the movie Moneyball. And so in a sport like baseball, they were doing this 
well before. And so this is sort of something. So let's get into a little more detail and sort of what exactly the brain game is. Not so much that people wouldn't want to go pay for your website, but enough to, to give them a taste. So, so drill down and give me a little bit, a sense of what people would get purchasing these programs. Well, I think the first thing to understand is the history of analytics in our sport compared to others. Um, statistics in tennis were first kept in 1991. Wow. Which is about late, which is unbelievably <laughs> late to the party. Very late. Yeah. So it's the first time we looked at something and said, you know what, let's, let's start counting. Um, it's historically been a game of feel. How do I feel today? How does the ball feel today? How does the court feel today? How is the weather today? Uh, all, all of these factors were things we'd said, okay, I, I played well today because I, I woke up and I felt good. Um, we haven't put a lot of emphasis on the numbers. So from 1991 to around 2002, very primitive numbers kept. Maybe about 10 line items. Well, I think IBM's still doing primitive numbers, aren't they? Yeah. Well, <laughs> they're improving. But my, my co-host and I often joke about the, these random, ridiculous stats they have uh, that have nothing to do with anything except except entertainment value, yeah. ultimately, which is what their job is, to be yes. fair. To be fair. Well, when analytics were first put in, that's what it was for. It was to spice up. Right. Um, a, a TV commentary so that there was something to talk about and some way to equate why a player was doing well and why the other player wasn't. Right. So 91 to 2002, it was primitive. 2002 to about 2015, slight improvements here and there. But 2015 was certainly when I got involved and started to look at things such as rally length yeah. and, and really kind of pioneered the understanding of tennis through a stat sheet. So it sounds like uh, something like dartfish, not existing and then existing, maybe started. the. Pro I mean, there's so much going on in a tennis match that you can't, it's hard to just watch it mm -hmm. and keep track without going back. I mean, you can old video cameras with the big VH tech. Uh, that's tough. That's tough to watch. But dartfish, was that the first? Yeah. Uh, I got involved with dartfish Right at the time they came out with an element um, of their software called match tagging. So yeah. when they brought out match tagging, I, I was invited. I, I knew the Dartfish rep in Dallas. Okay. Chuck Wilmot, uh, great oh, yeah. guy. Yeah. So Chuck invited me to go to Atlanta to meet everybody at Dartfish because I was doing a lot with it um, just with the, with the analysis of technique. So I went there and they, they brought out this new element called match tagging, which enabled you to tag a match and then look at things by strategy instead of chronologically. Right. So, so what you could do is you could go through, just to clarify for listeners, you go through, you, you watch this video through the Dartfish software mm -hmm. and you have buttons that you can set up for whatever you as a coach sort of decide. But let's just say, for instance, you can set up you know cross-court forehands. Every time they hit a winner on a cross-court forehand, you hit the button mm -hmm. and it'll pick apart an entire match and you can go back and just look at that one thing over and over and over again. That's it's it's exactly. way more complex. You can get way more complex, um, but, but that's essentially – the nuts and bolts of what that tagging means. That's exactly right. So, Because prior to that, they were just draw pictures of your angle of your elbow on the serve, and it was really to enhance video analysis in terms of technique. And then this really is a whole different half of what Dartfish does. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Dartfish is amazing software that, um, again, I used initially to break down technique and then to break down matches and – once you start breaking things down, especially for the first time, you uncover gems everywhere. So were you sitting there in front of a computer like Ben Franklin with a key on a kite saying, what, wait, what, wait, what? Did I just figure something out that nobody else has figured out? I mean, were you freaking out? Well, yeah. And it was in Dallas. It was at T-Bar. It was, I think, around 2005. And, and, you know, looking at the software, I remember the first panel that we made took about 100 hours. Yeah. Of work to put that together. And then it still had, you know, little bugs in it. And we, you know, it got improved over time. And, and now it's, it's a very integral part of what I do in my business and certainly how I work with Novak. And so we're still, Dartfish is still the leading edge 
of that technology, that 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 software for our sport. Yeah, it is. It, it absolutely and is. You're still using it and every day. How about how about if you had to go back and use the 2005 version? How tough would that be? Yeah, not easy. Not easy. <laughs> That'd be like using a flip phone. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think where Darnfish have done such a great job is they've always had really good software to break things down, but they've now they've now understood that if you if you just break it down, how are you going to share it? How are you going to deliver right. it to the player? Yeah. So it's it's more their online platform um, for for sharing not only the analytics but also the videos. Well, we forget how just so short a time ago that wasn't possible. And so everything sort of develops together with technologies, you know, that develop. I mean, being able to watch a video of your you sit in a player, a video, one of my team, you know, team members or something on their phone. It's mm-hmm. insane. Yeah. Yeah. So that really makes and that makes it really marketable. Um, and so so more coaches, not a lot of coaches, not enough coaches use it, though. So um how can your braingame.com encourage coaches to uh, – it, it, does it work hand-in-hand hand with Dartfish? Does a coach need Dartfish? Does it make it easier for them to use it? Because it's pretty intimidating yeah. for starting out. You just get this software and you're like, wow, what is all this stuff? Is it is your sort of a drop-and you know, drop play sort of process to make Dartfish easier? No, it, it has – the courses have nothing to do with actually using the Dartfish software. Oh, okay. So I use the software to extract the analytics and then create the courses based on that. So it's it's much simpler than trying to learn a new software. Thank you. Yes. Thank you for that effort. That 100 hours you said, yeah. I don't want to – I've got other things to do. So yeah. I'm glad you do that for us. <clears throat> yeah. But that's why people need to go to braingame.com. Now – you are speaking all over the place. Is that right? So you, you go to conferences. Uh, I think you've been to the ITA conference before. Yes, I have. Um, which, for y'all that don't know, it's an intercollegiate tennis association. It used to be the intercollegiate tennis coaches association. Um, and that's basically the group of all college coaches, Division One, Two, Three, uh, NAIA, JUCO. And I don't know what else is out there, but there might be something. And that's, that's all those folks. A gathering of all college coaches. How receptive have college coaches been – to you know your information and are they are they sort of slapping their heads and having eureka moments when you're because it really can change the way you know because we don't deal with as a college coach we don't deal with a whole lot of technique anymore they're past that point now there's tweaks and certain things obviously but we're not reworking games we don't have that kind of time in college but something like your revolutionary or innovative you know information that's got to change coaches' whole perspective. Yeah, college coaches were very early adopters of what I've done. You know, I've got a very good relationship with them. I know a lot of coaches. I've spoken at the conference. And when you're bringing new data and new information, um, that directly impacts winning. Sure. And these coaches have got a budget for, you know, anything in their program that is going to help them win more matches. Right. I, I've been to a lot of schools around the country doing speaking engagements, consulting with the coaches, doing presentations for the teams. Uh, I greatly enjoy it because when you look at a college player, you've got somebody that can hit the ball really well, but doesn't really know the patterns of play behind it. Right. So I think what I do is, is an excellent fit at that level. And, um, I greatly enjoy working with the coaches. You know, the the players can make a big leap in their game, right? And and it can really help the bottom line with winning and losing. So, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but uh, 17, 18 year olds don't make good choices generally, <laughs> and that would include on the court. And so, yes. you know, having you know, sort of indisputable information. You say, hey, you don't have to listen to your coach. Look at the day. You're all college students. Y'all do research. Look, there's research. And from the coach's standpoint, it's say, hey, w- this is what makes sense. We're going to do this. And it makes it a lot easier for the kids to buy in as well. You know, because you're fighting the history of their growth as a player from seven years old to, to 17. Then they come to you the first year and you're trying to make adjustments on what they've been doing for the past however long. Right. Unless their junior coaches had brain game, of course. There you go. That's a whole different story. So how many coaches have said, hey, 
I love your program. Don't sell it to anybody else <laughs> in my conference. Because yeah, I'm going to tell you that right now. <laughs> I'm going to buy it. Don't sell it to anybody in my conference. Well, For I at mean, least like three years. Yeah. It's it's all available online. So it's it's pretty tough to, to keep it quiet. No. It, and in tennis, I think more coaches are like Bill Belichick. You know, they're closing off practice. They're sealing up rooms so nobody can see anything. And honestly, there's nothing new under the sun uh, in terms of what to do. You've just, you've just seen what you're describing in terms of your data and what it's showing is nothing new. It's the way it's coming about. Is that, is that fair to say? Yeah. So in other words, coaches have taught players how to play properly and players, obviously we had Pete Sampras before we had Feder. I don't know if you youngsters out there know that or not. My favorite player of all time, by the way, um, besides Novak, I'm still kissing up to you, you know, so, so this information has been there, but just not in the way presented and, and, you know, sort of from the research fact-based side of things. I'm not explaining it very well, but does that make sense? What I'm trying to get at? Yeah. Analytics can be put into kind of two different areas. One is numbers and research and data that simply counts what's happening in a match. Okay. The other element is you're counting the win percentage of what happens in a match. So a lot of the new data revolves around the win percentage and you know, in, in a very raw way, we don't really care what you do in a match as long as you win the match. Right. So let's have a look at the win percentages um, and, and take away the bias. So, you know, for example, there's certainly a, a bias in our sport that says serve and volley is dead. You can't do it. It's bad. And Much to my consternation, by the way. Yes. Like I said, we're pretty close to the same age, so yeah. we've seen all-court tennis. That's the thing, all-court tennis. Ex- I don't know if you exactly. know that out there. Exactly. But um, when you look over the years, you know, people have said Servant Volley's dead and they back it up with the one column that looks at how many times players at Wimbledon have actually served and volleyed. Right. So around, you know, 2000, it's around 30% of, the, of, of uh, Servant Volley points. And that was all Pat Rafter. 100% of those points were Pat Rafter. And now it's dropped down to around 6%. So somebody's going to look at that number and go, well, there's all the proof you need. That serve and volley is dead in our sport. It doesn't work anymore. If it did work, players would be doing it. But there's a column right next to that that they're not looking at, which is the win percentage. And when you serve and volley 50% of the time, you win around 65% of the points. And it's and, the same. Uh, Zverev is bringing that down because his volleys are horrific. But that's a separate issue. Separate Another issue. podcast yeah. again. Well, somebody's got to lose some points. <laughs> But whether you serve and volley 30% or 20% or 10% or 6%, it, it, it only varies one or two percentage points. Well, see, and what we see on TV, kind of back to those goofy stats, you know, are net points one, which can ultimately be irrelevant because, you know, Novak wears somebody out on the baseline. They're on the dead run. He yep. sneaks into the net and boop, that's not a serve and volley. You're talking about serve and volley, mm-hmm. which. I mean, that's blasphemy what you're saying, sir. You know that, right? This, you're exactly, it's not just, oh, sir, Volley's dead. No, no, no. It, it, people are more vitriolic about that. I mean, you watch, you know, these, these players and people are trying to teach everybody to play, you know, four feet behind the baseline and just grind. And it, I, I can't tell you how happy and beside myself I am that you're telling me that serve Volley is not dead. Yeah, it's a really, it's all, it's never, we've given up on it. It's never given up on us. Right. So the numbers support it. And, you know, when you serve and volley, you've got to make that decision before the return is hit, before you know. When you're coming to the net in a rally, you get more indicators. You right. get, you get more looks at, is this a really good idea? Is my opponent taking a big step? Are they, preparing their racket behind them to hit a slice. Or even the shot before that you hit, you know that that next one you're coming in after that because you know all those signs are there yeah. that you know he or she's dead in the water. I don't want to stay back here and hit four more baseline shots. I want to come in. And, mm-hmm. and that's not what you're talking about. What you're talking about is I'm coming into – I'm charging the net serving and then coming in immediately. So all those all those stats that, you know, those baseliners come in and boop, drop a ball over is not what you're talking about. Because that's what that's the only stat we get. Net points one. Mm-hmm. And I always say, yeah, but nobody's volleying. Mm-hmm. 
nobody's digging out a you know a, a knee high volley and then coming in behind that to put it away. So you're talking about legitimate. Lova Boris Becker style, baby, mm-hmm. uh, or Pat Rafter, or every single player before 1980. Mm-hmm. So I love it. And so, and that's on every surface or just faster or? Oh, I was just at Roland Garros and saw a bucket load of serve and volley at Roland Garros by, by a, a lot of different players. What, what's so ironic is that last year when I was there, I looked on the stat sheet and I didn't see a servant volley column. So I go to the French Federation and who are, they have their own company that, that does the, the stats. And you know, you put an IBM or put their label on it, but it's a, it's a French company there that, that has, employs the people to, and trains them to record all the data. And I said, you guys, there's something broken with your software. There's, you're missing a line item because it's the same company at all four slams. It's the same data. Um, it, it's not, it's not different. So I go, there's, there's a line missing. Serve and volley. It's in Australia. It's at Wimbledon. It's at the US Open. And they're like, no, we, we, we just don't record it here. It doesn't, wow. it doesn't happen enough. And it's, again, it's the myth that it doesn't happen enough. It's the opinion that it doesn't happen enough. And it's happening everywhere. Right. But, that's just, you know, it's just another little story that someone randomly said, no, we don't want to record that. And, and it, it really hurts our sport a lot. You know, you look at these other sports such as NFL, NBA, MLB. I've heard of those, I think. One, they're in one country and they've got one governing body and they've got one commissioner and it's a team sport. So they, they, get, a, they get a lot of money that is very focused and they can put teams of people um, looking at match data. Right. And tennis is not the same at all. You have a global sport in many different languages. Sure. You have three governing bodies in the WTA, the ATP, and the ITF. Not counting the thousands of federations. Then, right. So you've got federations under that, but none of them really like each other. None of them really <laughs> want to share anything with, with the anyone French don't else. like anybody, but they don't like anybody. Exactly. Well, I, far be it for me to call you biased. Uh, <laughs> you, you are uh, from a place where certain volleys in the blood, that, that in the water. Uh, but honestly, for, I, this is a, a little more, you know, 30,000 foot view, but f- I think for the, the future and popularity of tennis, you have to have all forms and facets. That's why it drove me crazy when they were talking about how they were slowing down grass for a while. And like, why are you trying to make everything look exactly the same when all these tools are available to tennis players? And I've always thought, how in the world is anybody going to get past a Novak or an Adal or these ground strokers? Well, they're going to have to start coming to the net because you can't do what Djokovic does all day not many people in the planet ever could. And so something's got to give. And it sounds like I'm going to the pro tour and coaching some guys coming to the net. I'm going to be famous. Mm-hmm. Not against Novak, but others. The, the other elements. So we've, we've got ITF, uh, the ITF, the, um, the ATP and the WTA. Then collecting the data, you have Infosys on the men's tour. You have SAP on the women's tour. And you have IBM um, at, at the slams, uh, only two slams now. They used to do all four. Then you have a layer of Hawkeye data, which is v- almost impossible to get because the tournaments or whoever want to protect that and, and keep that. Right. Um, and then you have, again, other layers, such as the USTA will have their own department, the Tennis Australia will, the French Federation will. They all count things a little bit differently. So we're so fractured in the way we collect the data, we're so fractured with the organizations that control the data. I mean, just have a look at the Cincinnati tournament, for example. Let's say you want some Hawkeye data out of there. Well, you've got to go to the ATP tour because it's an ATP event. You've also got to then go to the USTA because it's a USTA (laughs) event. You've also then got to go to- Sounds like the DMV. Yeah, Tennis TV because they hold the rights to it. Wow. so, and then you've also got Hawkeye involved that say, well, we, you know, hang on, we, we've got a part of this as well. So, so the same issue that affects every other aspect of our game also affects something as seemingly benign as 
how many forehands winners down the line did somebody hit? You know, I mean, that's yeah. absurd. That's that exactly. is absurd. I can understand, you know, maybe training methods that mm-hmm. a French Federation wants to protect for their play, whatever. I mean, competitive mm-hmm. stuff I understand, but just plain old data that everybody watches on TV. You see it actually happen. Yeah. You don't know it. You're not picking out that information, but it's right there. That's insane. And I remember once as well, I was at Wimbledon a few years back and I went down behind the scenes into the ESPN bunker and, and they showed me what was going on down there. And they had somebody doing stats for them as well. And I'm like, well, what, you've, you've got official data from the tournament. Why are you guys doing it? And they're like, well, that's what we do. That's how we do it. <laughs> I mean, Whether yeah. it's wrong or right, that's what we do. Yeah, they probably have a staff person at every sport, no matter curling, no matter what it is, I guess. Yeah. So um, the downside is they probably have zero tennis people uh, at places like ESPN, which, by the way, less and less coverage of tournaments now that t- Tennis Channel has so many rights to so many tournaments. Mm-hmm. ESPN, it's barely on the bottom crawl anymore. Mm-hmm. That's that's just another aspect of how the fracturing and all that stuff is just – Oh man, you're, now you're to pray. You went from hey, Sir Valley's going to save the game to now this is ruined. This is over. So we need a FIFA type body so they can get bribed by people in Dubai to move the French Open to Dubai. That perfect. We'll do that. I think a commissioner in tennis would be outstanding. I yeah. think somebody that's that's you know um, that, that governs men's and women's tennis and and all the different levels and all the tournaments. It can only be good. Yeah. It can only be good. Yeah. Yeah. And and uh, having any kind of group made up of a rep from everybody changes nothing because you're still only representing that body's interest. Or if you have that David Stern type guy who just says, this generally is what we need to do. Stop messing it up. All you crazy, you know, federations, USTA included. Mm-hmm. So interesting. So BrainGameTennis.com, anybody at any level, 4035 and above maybe, because you have to have some physical ability to hit balls. So once you get past that stage and you're rallying, competing is kind of where it starts. Yeah, once you start competing, once winning matters. And, you know, even at a 3-5 level, you know, it, it just a basic strategy is I'm going to do my best to put four balls in the court every single point I play. Right. Forget about winners. Forget about them. The the errors are going to flow freely. So, you know, and even break it down and make it simple. Make it two. I'm going to put every time I play a point, I'm going to put two balls in the court. Right. And if you focus on that and and you're okay making errors after that, um, you're going to win a bucket load of matches because – those first two errors are most of the errors in our sport. The errors are front-end loaded. Right. When we have, start with a serve and we start with a return, you know, there's, there's a lot of power. We're, we're crunched by time. We're in different positions. Um, the, the errors happen way more at the start of a point than they, they do at the end. Yeah, we, you know, even with my women's team who, you know, we're division three. So uh, on the women's side in particular, there's not a lot of power on the serve and all that kind of stuff. But – we still, and the players hate it. They really do hate it, but I think it helps. We definitely work on serve return, but then we, I, I have to yell at them sometimes. That's it. You hit two balls and it's it. And if you can't focus on where the return's going because you're busy horsing around hitting, you know, diagonal points while your teammates are waiting to serve, you know, just that one, two, one, two. Where are you at after your serve? Where are you at after your second serve? If your teammate is on the cross wailing on your your return, then obviously there's something different. Well, don't miss your first serve. Let's start there. I, I do a lot of practice where there's only four shots hit, and then just catch the ball or let it go. Yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of training. You know, one of the favorite drills I do it, it's in progressions, but the first progression is five minutes. The player serves only second serves in the juice court. Right. To the back, basically position three, which is to the middle backhand, and and that return goes down the middle to the right hand as backhand. So you do five minutes serving, then five minutes returning. So both players will switch then. Right. So you're ten minutes in. Then we go to the ad court and we add a third ball. So you've got a second serve, a second serve return, and a serve plus one ball. Five minutes of serving that, five minutes of returning that. So and those tw- those servers really start to see. 
wow, the second service situation is not good. Yeah. Because they're just focused on that next ball coming at them. They're not worried about three or four shots down the line. It's my second serve. Oh, good Lord, they just crushed that return. Now I'm just scrambling. Right. And it really points it out immediately. You know, now you're on TV, so it's probably easier to get your players to buy in. So, uh, but it, it, it is, it is, um, result oriented. I mean, it really does make a difference, but to get them to stop, it drives, it drives them crazy. Yeah. Which I, well, the, the way that I sell that drill is I get video of their matches and show them the, the unbelievable amount of early errors that they're making in their match. Right. So we tailor our practice court accordingly. So that again, that, First progression is two shots. The second progression is three shots. The third progression is four shots. So you get a serve, a return, a serve plus one, a return plus one. And you stop right then. And the drill I do is called perfect points. So if either player has done something well with either of those two shots that they've hit, they'll say, okay, I want to put one point on our combined shared scoreboard. It's not adversarial. Right. So... If you don't like what you did, no point goes up. Right. If you hit an okay return, but a really good return plus one ball, it's like, hey, I liked what I did at least on one shot. So I'm going to put one point on our scoreboard. And, and you get two second serves. There's no first serves yet. So two second serves. The server will serve until the score, the combined scoreboard reaches five. Then you switch. The other player serves to you get to 10. Change ends of the court. The first server is now serving again until you get to 15, and then the other player serves to get to 20. So you've played 20 points that either player combined has done something good. Right. The next progression is you include a first serve, and you do the exact same scoring system. And the last progression is you can play the point out fully. But it's still the well, per- Hopefully, I guess the idea is that the full points look a lot like the partial points. Yeah. And they don't yeah. go a whole lot past that typically if each person is doing what they're supposed to be doing. Right. It, it's, it's understanding that it's not all offense in the first four shots. There's a lot of defense you know, you're defending against a first serve. You're defending against a serve plus one um, return off a second serve. You're generally defending with a return plus one ball, typically with the backhand um, deep in that backhand corner. It sounds like one of the things that that this really does for uh, players is is helps them be thinkers out there and really – and really understand what's going on, not just close your eyes and wail on a ball. Oh, I missed it. I need to get my forehand better. I need to work on a ball machine and get my top spin better, which obviously you still need to improve your technique, but all things being equal to players, you're getting them by breaking it down shot by shot. It's, hey, well, what is this shot getting me and put me in position versus this shot? You know, first server, second server, for instance, that kind of thing. Is that... Yeah. Something you're looking for these players to sort of start to self-coach a little. I think as a younger coach, I would do a lot of one-shot repetition. Right. Such as hit the serve, hit another serve. Right. Now I do almost everything I do on a court is at least a two-shot repetition. Such as if you serve here, I'll feed the next ball. So you've got to serve plus one for So not just action, action, reaction. What What is your action getting or yes. causing? That's fun. What's coming back. So yeah. it's, 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 a two, it's at least a two-shot sequence. You want the player to think, if I do this, what am I getting next? And be ready for that next ball and have a plan for it. Right, right. And, you know, I mean, they're arguing about uh, the U.S. Open allowing coaching. And, of course, the argument against it is, oh, you got to figure things out out there by yourself. And mm-hmm. if, that, if, if we hold to that belief, then one thing about that is if you're coaching them from mm-hmm. that, so you're not yelling at them what to do, but saying, hey, here's this. See what it gets you. Yeah. I told you. <laughs> and then, you know, vice versa. So um, it seems to me that – absolutely necessary that every tennis player and or coach needs to have a video camera or at the very least an iPhone. Yeah. um, When I was coaching early on on tour, I was the only person that would carry a camcorder and a fence mount to tournaments. I remember being in Miami, um, looking around the locker room, talking to coaches. I'm like, do you have a camcorder? No. Yeah. Where's your fence mount? You know, and hang the camera. And a lot of times back then, you know, I, I would hang it and then I would go back, you know, to the player lounge or the restaurant and, and 
plug the camcorder into the computer and uh, and, and get Darfish out and, and, and start analyzing the match of, of the player, you know, whether they won or lost to figure out what's going on. And at the time, early on, it's it's like every other sport, you kind of laughed at a little bit. You yeah. kind of gone, oh, there's that weirdo over in the corner with mad his, scientist yeah. guy, right? Oh, is absolutely. There, there's the weirdo with the with the dart fish, and we don't need that. We know how to play. We don't need a computer to tell right. us how to play tennis. And and um, now you're absolutely crazy if you don't if you're not doing something above normal. It used to be on the tour that. The only scouting the players would do would, you know, the draw would come out and you, you know, at eight o'clock or nine o'clock at night and you figure out who you play and you've never heard of the guy and you've never played them before. So off to YouTube you go and you, yeah. you hopefully some fan has uploaded five minutes of video <laughs> on the other side of the world in the last two years. So you can at least see if the player's left handed or right handed or what they want to do. I mean, for a long time, just looking at random matches on YouTube was how players scouted. Right. Not anymore. Yeah, next level for sure. So it so does does braingametennis.com serve as a bridge because we talked about video cameras and one thing you you tell a coach, "Oh, you got to videotape matches" or tell players you got to watch yourself play. That is one side of the Grand Canyon. The other side of the Grand Canyon is dartfish tag matches and all the information. Are you the bridge that goes over the Grand Canyon? Because a coach gets a, a camera. Okay, now what? Oh, I got a fence mount. I know how to do that. And I can turn it on yeah. without falling off the fence. Cool. Now what? Yeah, exactly. I'm at, uh, a new element. <clears throat> excuse me. Of my business is to do exactly that. Early on, I thought what I was going, what I was heading towards, was a business model that players from anywhere in the world could send matches in. I would tag the matches and show them what they're doing wrong or right. It is such a labor-intensive process that after doing a few matches, I'm like, (laughs) I'm not doing this. This is not fun. For Novak you can, but not for everybody sending videos to you once a day. This bends my brain the wrong way. So my new... Um, business model that I'm branching back to a little bit, working with a gentleman named Warren Pretorius. He has a company called Tennis Analytics. He now, has. He a, used to be with Dartfish, is that he, right? He still is. Oh, okay. And he has he has a team of people that that's what they do. They tag. That's their job, and and they're unbelievably good. With at no it. judgment, they're just they're literally just, mechanically just tagging. tagging. Um, and they don't have to then go and do the analysis right. and put it all together. They're, they're just doing that. So now we, Warren and I, have teamed up together and looking at the process of creating the report and then from, you know, I don't have to tag the match, I don't have to create the report, but I can look at that report and look at the numbers and see what players are doing and then give you my analysis of this is what you're doing well and what you're not doing well. So it's taken something that took seven hours and I can now do it in seven minutes. So that's a lot of fun and it's, you know, it's really born from trying to get turnaround time and trying to get as much data out of a match in the shortest amount possible and and still understand what all that data means. And, you know, for Novak, particularly at Masters 1000 events early on, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you may play every second day, but Thursday through Sunday, you're playing every day. Right. So you need to know... Who's the next guy? What did he do? He may have had a night match. You know, the, the opponent may have played at nine o'clock at night. Novak's got a noon match the next day. So you need that match tagged. You need to see what they're doing. You know, it's important to know, you know, take Nishikori, for example, where Novak may have played six or seven matches against him in the last two years that have all been tagged and you know what's going on and you know how Nishikori plays. But you also want to know how did he just play last night? Right. What's he doing? Yeah, light, nobody's lately? stagnant. These yeah. guys aren't stagnant for sure. They're, they're changing things. Right. Things get hot. Things don't get hot. You know, Nishikori's got a great backhand, but is it off this week? Right. Do we play it more this week? So these are the things that can affect matches and can affect careers and, and the legacies of players. So, you know, you want to make sure you've got every box ticked and, and that's what we're doing now. Yeah, I I, I think that, that uh, culmination of – 
getting into data and mm-hmm. then having Dartfish come through its, you know, progress all since 05 or whenever it was invented. Uh, and now the internet in your hand, it, it seems like everything's coming together. This couldn't happen 20 years ago to where we are now. And so, but what a time to be a player. What a time to be a coach. It's pretty amazing. I mean, yeah. I, you can say that about anything, but, yeah. but, you know, for our sport, who is always late to the game, uh, this really is the cutting edge for us. Yeah. And, and I think this process I'm putting together with Warren now will be a big game changer as well. It's going to be a huge leap forward where you could be a kid in Brazil playing in a 14 and under tournament and send that video of that match in and the next day, 24 hours later, have your match broken down the exact same way with the exact same method and the exact same report that the world number one is getting. Wow. And and it's all very simple. It's not the world number one's getting anything that's you look at as like, I can't understand this. Right. The simplicity is give me, the key. Give me a quick example, generally. Not Novak, don't give any secrets away because sure. I, I might have to play him next week and I don't want to beat him, you know. Uh, but but just something that, that uh, you would pull out and a report and, and a coach would look at it or a kid would look oh, at one it. One of the, f- the first things is the importance of uh, strategy I call serve plus one. So the very first shot after the serve is either going to be a forehand or a backhand. Sure. Most of the returns are hit back through the middle of the court to the backhand side. So when you cut, I cut the back of the court up into four areas, A, B, C, D. Very simple. If you start out wide and you start with the juice court, cut the juice court in half. The outer half of the juice court is A. The inner half is B. The inner half of the ad court is C. And the outside half is D. So always on the outside of the juice court, you have position A on both sides. Right. So they go across. across so you're the hitting cross-court forehands yeah. A to A. A to A. If they're wide. Right. So what we discover is that tennis is a C to C sport. More, sure. more yeah. balls flow C to C than anywhere else. So what you want to be doing is absolutely hitting a forehand as a serve plus one shot. Right. And you want to be hitting it if you're in a neutral position, you want to be hitting it deep to C. And if you're more aggressive, you want to be hitting it deep to D and sometimes going back behind away. So a great combination is, are you serving wide in the juice court to pull the opponent off the court to create that massive hole in the ad court to their right. backhand? So are you hitting at which is position one? Are you serving to position one? Is the ball coming back to C, which it probably is? Are you taking that as a forehand, which you're probably not? And are you targeting the opponent's backhand in position D? And are you if the, if the return is short, are you coming to the net? Right. It, it's a strategy that Novak runs all the time. It's a strategy that pro players are, are hoping to run all the time, but they just don't understand the importance of it. Right. And we can teach that to a kid in Brazil and we can loop in on the email his coach so that the coach sees everything. Right. The kid can pull up on his computer all I, um, not only what we think, but he can pull that match up and put those filters in. So the kid can look at the match and go, okay, how many serves did I serve to position one? How many times was there a serve plus one ball, forehand or backhand? And what was my win percentage? Right. And he can see the video of all of that and he can see it within 24 hours of his match. And coaches, certainly there's nothing new about serve wide to open up the court and hit to the open court. Right. But that's just sort of a general... You know, oh, I've always been coached that, and my coach coached that, and his coach coached that. But now you're talking about just hard data, and with the Dartfish technology and what y'all do, you can pull out the numbers and say, not only is this a good plan, let me show you how many times. Let me show exactly where the ball's going and why it's working. Exactly That's right. That's incredible. Exactly right. You, you know, it's not we're coming up with a new serve. Right. But we want to know – is it better to serve wide or T? Right. And, and you know, does it change for Diego Schwartzman or Milos Reinich? We want to know that. Does it change for Novak on hard or grass? We want to know that. Right. We don't want to guess literally about anything. You know, and that's probably fighting words a little bit to some coaches, but in the sense of a wide serve, a coach or anybody thinks mostly that – when you talk about a wide serve, oh, yeah, the old lefty wide serve. That's the play. Mm-hmm. And, and to some degree, if you don't have numbers, 
you really are. You're not guessing. It's an educated guess. It's an opinion. It's an opinion. That's a good, but it's, it's like I said, you watch a match on Wimbledon with no calculator or pen or pencil in front and then come back and let me quiz you on, on yeah. how many this or that. You have no it's impossible. idea. No idea. Impossible. And so, and so this takes it out of the run. This may validate what coaches are doing with data, which really is important from buying from your players. So it's not necessarily saying you coaches don't know anything. We've got this new thing we came up with. It's saying, hey, there's some things you know. You just don't know why you know them. And there's some things that you think you know that maybe not because yeah, exactly. the numbers show. Right. Are you getting pushback? Anybody want to beat you up saying, hey, I've been teaching. All my kids are freaking out. They want to... <laughs> Uh, yeah, of course you get a little pushback. I mean, especially if you're, you know, it's the same in Moneyball. If you're the first, there's a saying in there, the first guy through the wall always gets bloodied. Yeah. And, you know, there's even some coaches out there today with all of the data, with all of the facts, with all of the amazing success that this has had. There's still some coaches that are like, well, I have coached my whole life differently. Right. I was brought up differently. I just don't – it just doesn't fit with my worldview of tennis. Sure. And I'm going to just throw different opinions and different knives back at you and try and poke holes in what you're doing. Um, but I don't have any data myself, but I <laughs> right. just think what you're doing is wrong. Yeah. Of course, you're going to get a little bit of that in anyone. In fact, I quite enjoy it. I, I quite enjoy seeing people lose their minds with no factual – evidence to back it up and just stammer and stutter and try to tell you stuff and roll out yeah. these reports so what you're saying is you are the brad pitt of tennis uh well the tennis channel actually at this table came to my house and we did an interview which you may have saw on my website that where they compared what i do to moneyball so they that they started that Nice little feature. Now you're better looking than Brad Pitt. Uh, definitely and not. And the accent. Come on now. And the accent. That helps. So. But, but it's interesting you say that because it was literally at this table we're sitting at right now in, in our living room where that was shot and, and Tennis Channel did a, an amazing job putting that um, little feature together. It was really Well, nice. it seems like uh, you've really stumbled upon something uh, in what I always tell any of my players. Hey, get in the tennis industry because if you're smart and can hit a ball – and think outside the box. We're so far behind. You can do anything. It sounds like you really, uh, you know, kind of hit a niche and an innovative niche, and uh, all the success to you. And hopefully, hopefully, you won't get you know too many knives thrown at you because ultimately, if we can all make players play better and all play better matches and have more success, how does that hurt our game? It doesn't. Mm -hmm. And the coaches that are scared to change won't. But all those coaches out there that are getting on your website, brain gametennis.com, mm -hmm. the ones who are not afraid to try something different and really spice up what they're doing and, and make their players better. That's only going to help our game, which I told you before we started recording, mm -hmm. in my opinion, every person that's in this game, in this business, has a responsibility to be the Pied Piper of tennis and lead everyone to this game. We're so, you know, I, I asked you about Australia or other countries and what you're seeing around the world, but for, for tennis in America, it seems that we're just always just struggling and things like this where, where players can be excited and coaches can be excited. Uh, and you don't have to be Novak's coach. You can be a JV high school coach and really benefit from this stuff and get fired up about what you're doing. That's just going to help help our game. So I appreciate what you're doing. My pleasure. It's, it's good to help coaches be inquisitive and to bring new data and a fresh perspective to our sport and, and, and just, you know, ultimately the goal is to make our practice court smarter. Right. Is to use the data from a match to organize our practice court and say, you know, hitting 104 hands cross court is not the best use of my time. Or it's certainly it's not, it shouldn't be 50 minutes of my hour right. of my lesson. Right. It could be a little bit. Yeah. But – the serve and the return in the first four shots dominate the match and they need to dominate our practice court. Now talking about open-minded coaches. So braingametennis.com is exposing, not exposing, but pulling out data that's showing us things. Are you open-minded enough as players and coaches start to counter what the prevailing success rate is? Could it change based on, you know, you're looking at, oh, wow, this is really having success mm -hmm. in these areas. 
Now I'm going to start coaching against that. Yeah. Because maybe I'm not as good as your guy at that. Yeah, yeah. And so can it change? Uh, Absolutely. I mean, like you mentioned earlier, if you have really good players from the back of the court, such as Novak, and, and your player likes to play from the back of the court, but it is not quite as good. Where do you find an edge? Right. And, you know, the edge is right in front of you. It's it's going to the net. So you're probably getting slings and arrows because of what you're saying the data says when that's not what you even care about. You yeah. care about getting the data and people looking at what's reality, mm-hmm. but your whole reality can change. And mm-hmm. the only way we're going to find out about that is if we find that out from Brain King. Tennis.com. I'm selling that <laughs> crap out you're of doing you. A great, you're doing a great job. Thank you. Um, so all anybody needs to do is just go to your website, braingametennis.com, listen for your name on TV because you're famous. And, uh, and I mean, listen, you're in Texas, so you're, you're going to be well-respected because our tennis is awesome down here. And so you're working with kids and all that. You're, you're putting this to practice as well. Mm-hmm. And so uh, anything else you want to say? Let people know out there. That's it. That's it. It's, it's fun to talk tennis. It's fun to spread the word. And, you know, podcasts are an amazing way to to help educate people. So thank you for uh, thinking of me for this oh, podcast. Sure. sure. Easy enough. All right. Okay. Good day. Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> Apologize. <laughs>